Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. All right, we are beginning a three-week discussion that we're calling the Say Yes Campaign. And it all starts this Sunday. We've been hinting towards it. We've been pointing towards it. You probably saw the giant display on the way in through the lobby this morning. Was there anybody who didn't see that as they came in? Anybody totally missed it? Anybody super not observant or your feet are on the floor today? I don't know. Your eyes are on the floor. Uh, It's huge. There's a big display there. There's all kinds of information. Aaron McKinnon is helping to facilitate the conversation in the lobby around that display out there over the next three weeks. Um... Lots of stuff. In the row that you sat in this morning, you probably saw a sent to serve booklet. We want you to take advantage of that. Uh, This booklet is nothing new. Doug Campbell helped to put it together years ago. Steve has done some editing and revamping work there. We've put a new cover on it. But all the content you're going to see from this campaign, this conversation over these three weeks, all stems from this book, Sent to Serve. Uh, If you didn't get one in your row this morning, there are more copies in the lobby at the display there. You can grab that, but it's further reading. I think it's like 47, 48 pages uh, to take you further in this conversation about all that we're talking about over the next three weeks. So I really want you to take advantage of that. I think there's 50 copies total. So if your family didn't get a copy, we would love to have to print more and get them in your hands for next week. Um, Also, you'll notice in the seat backs, there's a Say Yes card there available for you. Uh, That Say Yes card, when you fill this out, let me be clear, when you put your information on one side and then you flip it over and you see the list of ministries and you check the ministries that you may be interested in or you feel God leading you towards on the back side, that is not signing your name on the dotted line in blood and now you're stuck in that ministry for the rest of your life. You understand? Is that clear? This whole campaign is simply a conversation. We should, have, we should probably call it that, the Say Yes conversation. When you fill out that Say Yes card, we're going to give this a big push on the final week, when you drop that off at the display in the lobby, it's simply giving the permission for the ministry leader over that ministry that you've indicated to have a conversation with you this summer about what it looks like to serve in that ministry, to start the conversation, to put some sort of strategy to this onboarding process of what it looks like to engage and serve and volunteer in the life and ministry of the church. Is that clear? You are not signing a contract that we are going to hold over your head. I don't want to hear that after this campaign. Uh, The final resource I want to point out, it's on the display, and it's also in the Sent to Serve booklet, and it's a spiritual gift assessment tool. It's nothing new. It's been in that booklet for years, and it's simply a tool. When you go through that spiritual gift assessment tool, it may not be 100% accurate, and you should not think that you are locked into whatever that assessment tool points out as far as what your spiritual gifts should be. It's simply a conversation starter, a prompt to get you thinking and talking about what your spiritual gift may be. And we're going to talk a lot about that next week. Over the three 
weeks of this Say Yes campaign, we're gonna be facilitating a conversation on this core value of engagement that we keep pointing to, engaging in the mission Jesus has for his church. We're gonna look at how our core value of community relates to our core value of engagement next week. Today, we're gonna look at how our core value of truth connects to our core value of engagement. So today we're talking all about truth. And there are three big questions that we're gonna wrestle with over the next three weeks, and here they are. How do I say yes? What do I say yes to? That's the question for next week. And today's question is, why would I ever say yes? That's the question for today. And can we have fun with it? Can we just take the tension out of the room? Like, what is he going to get me to do? No, no, no. Let's just, just get comfortable here. Why would I ever say yes? Here's the problem. Churches tend to overlook these conversations. Serving is just kind of assumed. It's just kind of expected. You're a Christian, you should serve in the church. Maybe it's passively, aggressively suggested, like, are you busy? You doing anything? Uh, my friend Charlie, he's been a head usher in his church for, I think it's over 30 years now. When we had the conversation, it was 25 years. But I think at this point, it's like 30 years. And I sat down with Charlie and I said, Charlie, how did you become the head usher at the church? Well, it's pretty simple, Josh. I was at the church building, waiting for the Sunday service to start, sitting in my usual spot, and I got a tap on the shoulder. So-and-so isn't here. Would you stand at that door as people come in? Sure. And 25 years later, here I am. I said, so you're telling me you've had no training? No. So that was the recruitment process? Yep. So you've never been sat down and said, like, here's why we have an ushering ministry. Here's why your gift of helps, your gift of hospitality might have you serving in the church in this way. You've never been told why you should actually be the head usher for 25 years, now 30 some years. No. That's a shame, isn't it? Does that sound familiar, though? And serving just becomes duty and obligation. Well, I said yes one time, and 25 years later, I've served a life sentence, and here I am still doing it, because who else is going to do it? So I want to give you six reasons why you should say no right now at the start of this Say Yes campaign. Are you ready? You should say no, because if you say yes, you might not have free weekends, you should say no because it might make for early Sunday mornings. Okay, you should say no. You, you should say no if you really value your personal space and privacy because they're probably going to need some contact information. They might even reach out to you at your home. So you should just say no. You should say no because there might be some responsibilities for you beyond just the serving at the church. There might be some homework. There might be some lesson prep. So you should just say no now. And then finally, you should probably say no because you might need to remember people's names. Is that a hard one for anybody? Oh man, if I say yes, if somebody asks me to do then 
So you should just say no now. Is that fair? Maybe this whole Say Yes campaign and and this teaching for today, maybe it's just an opportunity for you to say no to the thing that you've been doing for years that you really don't know why you've been doing it. Every discussion needs to start with why. Why would I say yes? Why would I do this? Why am I doing what I'm doing? That's the connection back to truth. That's the connection to knowing. That's the connection to meaning. This is our core value of truth. Why would I say yes? If you don't know the why, then you don't need to bother with the what or the how or the who or the when. Unless you first have the why. If we as a church don't know why we're doing what we're doing, then we should probably stop doing what we're doing. Our core value of truth is all about why. Truth is knowing. Truth is meaning. Truth is not mindless duty and obligation. So why would we say yes? When we receive the truth of the gospel for the first time, it becomes our why. It becomes our meaning. It becomes the truth that we live our life by. God's love becomes our reason for living. The apostles said the love of Christ compels us. It's our why. It's our meaning. The fact that Jesus died becomes my reason to sing, my reason to praise. Not because I had a great week, not because everything in life is going well, but because Jesus loves me and died for me. That's the reason why I need to sing. That's the reason why I need to serve. The fact that I have the Spirit of God living in me becomes my reason to pray, my reason to seek his power, my reason to draw on his strength. Our core value of truth isn't some special, supernatural ability so that in every situation, we've got an answer. When you come to Christ, you still have questions. You still have to ask why to all kinds of questions, but the difference is you have the why for the question and it changes all other questions. Now every question, every discussion, every doubt in life is now framed up in our understanding that God loves me and his son Jesus died to pay for my sins and he rose again to give me new life and the Holy Spirit dwells inside me to lead me, to guide me, to strengthen me. So every other question, every other situation in life is now framed up in that why, that answer, and that truth. Doesn't mean we have a supernatural answer for every question. So here's a why question. Why are we starting a campaign two weeks before kids get out of school? (laughs) Father's Day is just three weeks away. Why are we trying to start a big push right now? My trailer is all ready to go at the campground and I can't wait to get there. Why are we doing a campaign right now? Why don't we wait until the fall when things really kick off and get started? Well, the fall's too late. The fall's busy. The fall's fast-paced. We want you to rest to recharge. It's been a tough two years. This summer should be an opportunity to make memories with your family, to enjoy the still, small voice of God in the quiet moments, to see his fingertips over creation, to disconnect, to recharge, to get some time away so that when fall hits, we're ready to engage. We're ready to go. 
We're ready to serve. And that time in between where we disconnect is an opportunity to have these conversations, to chat with a ministry leader about a given ministry, to pray about it, to consider it, to get the training we need, to get our protection protocol in place if we're working with kids or youth, and to be ready to go by the time that fall hits, because you know what it's like. Those back-to-school commercials come out, and they are the worst, aren't they? They're probably going to start in the next few weeks. I just know it. And then summer's going to go, and then September's going to be here, and we're going to be saying, this is starting, and this is starting, and we need volunteers for this. Well, by then, it's too late to consider. So we're asking you, let's have this conversation now, and then through the course of the summer, we have a few months' opportunity to pray, to consider, to chat, to train, to get up and running so that when fall comes, we're ready. We're ready to engage. And when God calls us and shows us his purpose for the fall season, the ministry, as people start to attend, as school gets back in and people set their minds towards church and what is this year going to look like and maybe we should step out again, we're ready to go. We're ready to receive. Does that make sense? That's why we're doing this campaign right now and we're not waiting till the fall, okay? We want you to rest. We want you to recharge. We want you to get time away in the summer season. To try and fight the summer vacation season is a losing battle. So let's engage in it. Let's have this conversation through it. Question. Here it is. Are you ready? Why would I say yes? Why would you? Why would you serve in the church? Why would you engage in the mission? Why would you work without monetary compensation? If we can't get the why, then we don't even need to chat the next two weeks. Because if we don't get the why, the conversation stops there. If we do get the why, then the next two weeks are going to be a breeze, let me tell you. Have you ever met somebody who knows their purpose, is passionate about what they're doing in life, they know why they're doing what they're doing. You can throw any task their direction. They're going to chew it up, spit it out, and run on to the next one. Because they know why they're doing what they're doing. You ever met somebody who doesn't know why they're doing what they're doing? Just going through the routine, punching the clock, day in, day out, nothing's changed for years. Have you ever tried to motivate a person in that state of mind? Don't bother. If you don't know your why... The what and the how don't matter. We need to get the why in place first. So why would you serve? I can honestly say after 12 years of full-time ministry, volunteer recruitment and retainment has been the hardest part for me. Part of that is my personality. Part of that is my gift set. But I can tell you the hardest part has not been sitting with somebody who's going through tragedy and loss. I kind of thought that would be the hardest part, but it hasn't been because the purpose as to why I'm there is abundantly clear. I can tell you that public speaking, which I thought when I was a teenager was going to be the hardest part and the reason why I could never be a pastor is no longer the hardest part. I can tell you that coming up with ideas and coming up with ministry opportunities is not the hardest part. That's easy. It's finding people to make that happen. 
and then supporting them and encouraging them and training them so that they remain in that frame of mind. That has been the hardest part. You know what the hardest part for me has been? The text on Sunday morning, just a few minutes before the program starts of, sorry, I'm going to be at the beach today. I know I was supposed to be there, but I can't be there. Can you find somebody to fill in? And oh, by the way, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. The hardest part has been the person who comes and says, you know what, pastor, you know what we need? You know what this church needs? They need a ministry to students in college. That's what this church needs. Praise God, I totally agree. Would you help us with that? Oh, no, 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 no. I, that's, that's not me. But the church certainly needs to do it. Well, aren't you part of the church? Like, <laughs> who's going to do this? Oh, no, not me. That's been the hardest part. Why is that? Well, I'm going to demonstrate why right now. Are you ready? I need a volunteer. I don't actually need a volunteer. That was the whole point. Jody, thank you. What, what did you feel in that moment when I asked for a volunteer and started looking around? What did you feel in your heart? Jody, what did you feel? Please don't look at me. Rick nudged you? Okay. And you didn't jump up. <laughs> when, when I'm sitting and somebody on stage says, I need a volunteer, my eyes go right to the floor. Don't look at me. Because I don't know the why. What's he going to get me to do? Could be anything. What if he asks me a question? I don't know the answer. What if he calls me up on stage? I might look silly. I wore these shoes today and I knew I shouldn't have worn them because he's going to get me up on stage. And it's going to be on camera for all to see. And Our mind goes through all these games, doesn't it? You get a phone call and you see the caller ID and it's like, oh boy, I know exactly what they're going to ask. How am I going to get out of this? I'm going to wash my hair on Friday night. No, that's not a good excuse. I need to come up with something better than that. Why do we do that? I don't blame any of you for responding that way. That's how I respond when somebody says, I need a volunteer. Don't pick me, because I don't know the why. I don't know what you're going to get me to do. Why is that? It's because we're missing the why. We're missing the truth around engagement. We're replacing our reason for serving with something that doesn't last. And we say yes out of duty and obligation, and we don't experience any joy in serving. And then there's this shame and this guilt that's associated with asking, can I take a break? Would that be okay? Oh, I've been doing this for 25 years and the recruitment process just looked like, hey, can you stand at the door? And I haven't had any training. I'm not really sure why I'm in this position. I actually think I'd be better in that position, but I'm scared to ask because who's going to do this if I step out? And there's this, this burden, this weight. And then we stay in that position and we limp and we suffer along thinking, Oh, it's just my Christian duty. There's going to be a crown for me in heaven, but man, I'm going to hate the process until we get there. We wear a half smile and it's frustrating and everybody can see it on us, but oh, they're faithful. They're here every Sunday. We're thankful. But you just, you hate it inside. And then you feel bad because you're in a worship service and you're supposed to be praying and praising God and but I don't like serving in the church because of the position I'm in or because I don't know why I'm in this position or I don't feel gifted for this position. 
We're scared to step out of it. It just seems like work. You overworked? Underappreciated? Did you know there was work before work became work? There was. Do you know that the Hebrew word for work, does anybody know what the Hebrew word for work is? Get ready, here we go. It's all bad. Isn't that good? A-W-B-A-D. Work is all bad. Doesn't that just suit it? Work ain't all bad. God gave the first man and the first woman a job. And that's what I want to look at first. And then we're going to look at one passage in the New Testament. And we're going to be done for today. Okay? God told Adam and Eve to engage in his new creation. Work is not a result of sin. Can you believe that? There was work before sin came into the picture. Work is part of God's original perfect design. The creator calls us to work in his creation. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Would you turn there? And go back to the beginning to answer this why question. Dig into some truth. Why do we do what we do? Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over. Everybody say over. over. Can you just say over every time we read over in the passage? Can you do that with me? The fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. <clears throat> so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There's the first command. Second command, subdue it. Third command, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. How many overs was that? Few. <laughs> I didn't actually count, I'm not sure. Subdue and have dominion over. It means to hold down, to rule over, to step on, to trample on is the picture. You, you walk on top of it. When God introduced work, it was something that man was over. Not work over man. Man was overworked, in control of it. Man was not overworked. Man was overworked. Okay? To subdue the earth. In the original Hebrew, it means kabosh. Isn't that good? Kabosh. The word translated as subdue, it means to make subordinate, dependent, subservient. Actively ruling over the earth with physical force or effort. Making it work for them. The first job. Let me ask you a question. Who created man? God. Who created woman? God. Who created creation? God. Who caused the animals and fruit trees to grow? God. 
Who does the work? God. It's not a trick question. It's not a trick question. God did all of that. What did Adam and Eve do? What did Adam and Eve do before they sinned? What, what was the first thing Adam and Eve did after God created them in the garden on day six? What happened the next day? They rested. God gives them a job on day six. Chapter two fleshes it out how he made man from the dust of the earth, breathed life into his nostrils. Then he made woman from the rib of Adam. We're going to look at that in a second. A helpmeet fit for him. Day six. Day seven, rest. The first thing Adam and Eve did after God gave them the job in the garden was rest. Isn't that good? That was pointed out at our, uh, our regional conference in Moncton, or uh, sorry, in Halifax on leadership. First job for Adam and Eve after they were created and given their job was to rest. Ruling over the earth. How difficult is caring for a garden if it's the perfect garden of Eden? Are there any thorns or thistles or brambles to take care of? Are there any predators to kick out like David taking care of the sheep? Are there any like uh, parasites or pests that need to be sprayed for at this point before sin entered the picture? I can only imagine that it was a pretty easy garden to care for and tend to, isn't it? My mind assumes that the only real duty that Adam and Eve had was to actually pick the fruit from the tree and enjoy it. What else did they do? They named the animals. God brought the animals to them and they just named them. And then God says, watch over the garden. The earth brought forth every living thing. God created it with the breath of his mouth and Adam and Eve did what? They watched over it. They subdued it, which couldn't have been too hard to have dominion over and rule over they just enjoyed the fruits of God's labor, didn't they? Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. You could translate that to work and to watch, to watch. Watch means to observe, to protect. Now, what do you have to protect a garden from if there's no threats, no sin, no evil? I don't know if there were weeds before the fall or not. I'm not sure. <laughs> what did they watch? What did they watch for? What did they watch over? What did they see? What did they look for? What did they look at as they worked? I think they, yeah, they enjoyed the new life in the garden. I think they're watching God work. The lily of the field, clothed in more majesty than Solomon. The sparrow that God cares for, who has no care. The majestic lion laying with the lamb. The starry heavens showing the finger work of God. I think that work and worship went hand in hand. I think as Adam and Eve performed the first job for humankind, this whole idea of watching God do the work was a huge aspect of it. 
it was all part of God's perfect design. Work came before the fall. To work, to have a job, to have a mission, to have a purpose, to have a place, to have a position, it's a good and necessary thing. You ever talk to a man who's recently retired? What's he doing? He's trying to figure out what to do. We were designed to have a job, a role to play, a position, a purpose, a calling. We're going to talk more about that next week. Man was designed to be over work. Work was made to serve man, not man to serve work. Not man to be overworked, but man to be over the work. You heard the slogan, many hands make light work. You've experienced that to be true. Community and work, not going it alone. Look at verse 20, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 20. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field, but... For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. I've often thought about what that would have looked like. Adam's sitting there and it says that God brought the animals and as they came, Adam named them. So here's all these animals before Adam. And Adam sees this time and time again and he's naming all the, all the animals. And this whole time, he's just reminded over and over again that there's, there's no helper, companion, suitable for him. Over and over again, God's demonstrating this. <coughs> so God does something about it, doesn't he? Causes this deep sleep to come upon Adam, takes his rib, creates Eve, a helper fit for him. Do you know what the term helper is in Hebrew? Ezer. E-Z-E-E-R. Easier. Isn't life and work easier when you have a helper working with you, when you don't try and go it alone, when instead we do the role, the job, the position, the calling in community? We're going to be talking more about that next week. It's better together. Many hands made like work, teammate. Eve is also a suitable helper for Adam. She fits him. She's opposite to him. It's like a puzzle piece. She brings different things to the table than Adam does. Therefore, they complement one another. We're going to talk about the different things we bring to the table next week. But work was part of God's original design. Is that clear this morning? Work came before the fall. So why did work become work? Why does our back ache when we hear that dreaded word, work? When you get the phone call, are you free to help? And you immediately come up with reasons as to why you can't. Would you consider serving? Ah, oh, no, sorry, I was just on my way out. Here's the question. Are you overworked or are you over the work? Man was to be over the work, not work over the man. We've all experienced if you don't stay on top of things, if you let them pile up in the closet for like a month and a half and then you open the door, all of a sudden you're under the work aren't you? One task is, is doable. Multiple tasks at the same time. We're having a conversation before the service. I'm not a multitasker. It's one focus at a time. Are you overworked? Maybe the first thing you need to do in this say yes conversation is to learn to say no. There's so much power in those two little letters. No. Trying to learn to say it more and more. Because if you can't say no to the things that shouldn't be a priority, 
You don't have time or opportunity to say yes to the things that should be a priority in your life. We're all busy. We don't have free time kicking around that we're looking to kill. You ever say that in a store when you're waiting for your wife? Hey, can I help you with something? No, I'm just killing time. Is anybody ever really killing time? I can guarantee each one of us is busy. We're engaged in some things that maybe shouldn't be a priority in our life. Each one of us has things that we need to say no to so that we can say yes to God's best. But when did work become work? The serpent tempted Eve. The only rule in the garden, the only tree that they couldn't touch. Eve ate the fruit. Adam failed at his job of having dominion and watching over and he ate it too. He went right along with it. He doesn't even say anything. He's standing there the whole time. God cursed the serpent, explained the painful consequences of sin. First, all the pain of childbearing that Eve would experience, how sin would affect she and Adam's relationship. And then he says this to Adam, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17. This is when work became work. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Why the ground? Let's talk about that in a second. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's kind of a morbid statement, isn't it? The ground is cursed. Why the ground? Well, because the ground is where God brought life from. Out of the earth came every creeping thing that creeps. Out of the dust of the earth, God formed man and breathed life into his nostrils. But now the ground is cursed. Life will not spring up effortlessly from the ground. Neither will life in Adam spring up forever either. One day he's going to return to the dirt that he was created from. Between now and then, work, sweat, labor, toil, pain, effort... It's like he works hard for the food he eats to get the energy to work hard for the food he eats to get the energy to work hard for the food he eats. It's just like it's Monday over and over. You ever been stuck in that mundane cycle? Just doing it to get it done? That's when work became work. Before that, Adam and Eve watched the garden do the work. They just ate of the fruit. God's perfect design accomplished the work and their job was simply to subdue and have dominion over God's perfect design. But now it was going to be painful, hard work. That's when work became work. Instead of being over the work, they were overworked and they were slaves to it. It's like a saddle on a horse. Are you riding the horse or is the horse got you saddled up and is riding you? Is it working for you or are you serving and working for it? Is the work over you or are you over the work? God's original design. So many of us are there. 
Work doesn't work for us and we end up working for work. There are Sundays when I step onto this stage and I feel like God has put his message and his truth for his church in me and I just have to stand up and just try and let it flow through. And it's just kind of like riding a wave. Have you experienced that? When you know you're in your passion, you're using your gift and it just flows. I don't know if you have a hobby like that, like you get your hands on a piece of wood and the beauty that comes out of that is just incredible. Or you start to knit and the creation that comes out is just like, wow, it's effortless. It's enjoyable. And then there's Sundays I get up on stage when it's been a long week. Or maybe I've procrastinated a little too long. Or maybe what I thought the scripture was saying, it turns out that God wants to go a different direction and it just feels like work. It just feels forced. It feels like, okay, I just got to get up and do it because the people are expecting a message. And I don't know that I really feel or understand totally what I'm saying, but I just got to get it done. Do you ever feel like that? Feels like work, duty, obligation. Maybe that's a snapshot of what serving has looked like for you. Maybe what used to be so much fun serving with the kids down on your knees, helping out, and I get to do this, has turned into, I have to do this. Maybe that initial excitement of stepping into that role and being like, really, I get to use my gifts to do this, has turned into, oh, another week, I've got to be here, and it turns into duty and obligation. Is that where you're at? Work, maybe even painful. Here's the truth that I'm here to tell you today, and this is what I want to end on. Because of Jesus, you don't have to be a slave to the work. Work doesn't have to rule over you. Because of Jesus, you don't have to limp through life under the weight and the burden and the punishment of sin. The reason to say yes is not out of duty and obligation and shame and weight and burden. No, no, no. Jesus died on the cross. His blood was the payment for our sin. We no longer have to face the punishment of that sin, but Isaiah 53, we laid all of our sin on him. He was the chastisement for our peace. Here's the truth. The pain, the toil, the sweat, the agony. Jesus took all of that on himself on the cross so that you don't have to keep carrying it through life and limping and just getting by in work and mundane duty, obligation. Jesus took it all on himself in our place. And in exchange, he gives us his spirit-powered life, abundant life that we get to enjoy and live. We get to live off the fruit of his labor and we don't have to labor for the fruit to get through the day. Because Jesus died on the cross. When we understand the truth of the gospel, the good news that Jesus died to lift that burden off of your shoulders, that he rose again to give you his new life-giving power, this abundant life, when you say yes to the forgiveness of Jesus, when you say yes to the new life from Jesus, you're also saying yes to the lordship of Jesus. When we say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, I need your forgiveness. Please forgive me. Give me new life. I confess my sin to you. The next thing we say or should say is now you are the Lord of my life. You're king of my heart. You have control. 
Take my life, Lord. All of this I surrender to your lordship, your rule. Be the king on the throne of my life. It's all for you, Jesus. When you say yes to salvation, you are saying yes to Jesus being king over your life. Maybe in this Say Yes campaign, that's the first yes that you need to make. Maybe you've never said yes to Jesus, to his forgiveness, to his new life, to his lordship, his reign and rule over your life. And maybe that's what this Say Yes campaign is all about for you. You need to say yes to Jesus. Jesus invites us to know the Father through him. And he gives us this interesting call in Matthew chapter 11. I just want to look at this passage and then we're done. Work became work, but Jesus undid that. Jesus flipped the script. Look at this interesting tension, this invitation that he gives. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. Maybe this is the yes that you need to say. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isn't that beautiful? It's like he's taking us back to the garden. The way things should have been. Rest. We can say yes to that. There's, there's truth in that. Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. So many people in this world, so many people in our church, so many people coming out of this pandemic, we're weary, we're heavy laden, we're just getting by, our backs are sore, we're limping, we have no energy. Are you overworked? Is work piled on your back? Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. But then he says something else. This is how we enter into his rest. Verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. How many have heard that verse before? Beautiful verses. We know them well. But just step back for a minute. Think about this. Jesus says, you want rest? Come to me. And then in the very next verse, he says, take my yoke upon you. You know what that means? If it's a game of tug of war, Jesus is saying, pick up the rope behind me and start to pull. If it's hiking up a mountain, Jesus says, put your arm in my backpack and help me carry it up this mountain. If it's carrying the wheelbarrow, Jesus says, hey, grab the other handle and start pulling with me. If it's carrying the appliance out of the kitchen through the doorway, which never fits, and you always crunch your fingers, Jesus says, I'll get this side, you get that side, help me carry this out. And I just want to say, Jesus, you just invited me to come and enjoy your rest. And the very first thing you do is to put me to work? How does that make sense? You know what a yoke is, right? We're not talking about Y-O-L-K in the center of an ag. We're talking about that, that big wooden beam. And I tried to find one. I called around, I looked around, I couldn't find a yoke to show you today. But that's my illustration. This big wooden beam that grows, goes across the neck 
of the oxen or the pair of horses or the donkeys. And then it's got this thing that goes under their neck to link them together. And then there's like this hook in the center that you chain the wagon or the plow to, and then it tows it along. And a yoke does two things. Number one, it can only go in one direction. The pair can't split. They can't pull in their own directions. And then number two, it's meant to spread the load across two, to spread the load across a team. The yoke, the yoke is for work. Now here's what you gotta know. When you accept Jesus' invitation, when you say yes to Jesus, when you say yes to his forgiveness, his new life, you are also saying yes to his yoke. Interestingly enough, that beam that goes across the shoulders, it looks a lot like the picture of Jesus carrying his cross up to Golgotha, doesn't it? This wooden beam. And Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus says, you want rest? Pick up my yoke and put it upon you. The first part of that yoke is submitting to his will and his direction. Because when you put on that yoke, you can't be separated from Jesus. You can't go your own way. You no longer have your own will, your own choices, your own mission, your own purposes, your own desires for life. When you submit to Jesus' will, you are saying your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And this yoke that we're yoked up on, Jesus is doing the leading and we're simply following. He says, learn from me, be my disciple, follow me. So we follow Jesus in the yoke. We submit our will to his. The second part of the yoke is it spreads the load. It shares the weight. And if you're teamed up with Jesus, how much can Jesus carry? What is Jesus' capacity? Is he saying, hey, I'll do 90% and you just do that last 10% that I can't get or that I leave that slides off the table? You can do that bit. It's like the cartoon where the guy picks up the ladder on one end and the guy at the other end can't even touch the ground. His feet are going and he's holding onto the ladder, right? We're not doing anything. Jesus invites us to put on this yoke to work with him, but who's actually doing the work? It's just like in the Garden of Eden where God did the creating, God brought the life, God gave the mission and purpose and the job, but then God accomplished it all at the same time. Serving in the church doesn't have to be this duty and this obligation and this burden, I have to be here week after week. Serving in the church could be the best way for you to fellowship with Christ. Serving in the church could be the best way for you to truly live out the verse, when I am weak, he is strong. Serving in the church, on mission, engaging in Jesus' mission, with Jesus, yoked up to Jesus, could be an avenue and a vehicle for you to fully understand what it is to be a disciple and follower and learner of Jesus and a worshiper of Jesus. What if serving with Jesus, yoking up with Jesus, was working for Jesus, with Jesus, in Jesus' kingdom, by his power, 
on his mission, through him, through his life-giving spirit, with his good news, with his message for the world that he loves, that he died to save, and you're just along for the trip. I'm praying that God would open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to what he can accomplish through us when we yoke up to him, when we submit our will to him, and when we allow the burden that we've tried to carry for so long to be spread across his capable shoulders as we're yoked to him, pulling and engaged in his mission. We've sent out discussion guides with this content in the faith newsletter. We've sent it out to your life group leaders. It's available. You have the sent to serve booklet. You can go so much further in this teaching. We've outlined how the Lordship of Christ is over the church. It's over your life. It's over your works. It's over your gifts. It's over your mind. It's over your body. The Lordship of Christ spans over all of it. And what the King is asking you today is to work with him in his kingdom for his purpose and for his mission as an aspect of your worship. Would you join me as we pray today and we close this out? Father God, I pray for your people today. I pray for this Say Yes campaign. God, would it not be this duty and obligation, this mundane routine that we found ourselves stuck in that we're ashamed and embarrassed to say, I no longer want to do this. But God, may serving and engaging in your mission be this life-giving opportunity, this original design, this purposeful aspect of our being as created image bearers of the creator, that we would yoke up with you, we would submit our will to you, and then we would see your strength and your power flow through us because when we're weak, when we're heavy laden, when we're tired, when we're weary, when we're worn, if we would just submit to that yoke, your strength, your power, your capacity, your immeasurable omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence would just flow through that partnership and that relationship. Thank you, Jesus, that you're not the kind of king sitting on his throne who waves his finger and tells us to get to work, try harder, do more, but that you are the suffering servant who carried your cross up that hill to Golgotha, and you invite us to pick up the cross, knowing that you're the one who carried the weight. You're the one who does the work. You're the one who died on it. You're the one who rose again. And we're simply with you in your mission for your people. God, we thank you for these things. Help us to take the time to rest, to meditate on Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 29. Help us to really think through what it means to come to you to take our yoke upon you. Thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Jesus, thank you that work doesn't have to be work because of what you accomplished on the cross. Help us to understand what that means for us. Thank you for these things, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.